Welcome to Flipping the Script, a podcast for women of color by women of color, helping you to not just navigate your way through change, but to embrace it. I am your host, Michelle Words. Today, I welcome Kathleen Whitelow. Kathleen demonstrates that it is never too late to achieve your dreams. Kathleen has a magnetic personality, and you will feel that you have always known her. Kathleen tells us how she pivoted from a career in communications to a completely new career that she had desired since childhood. Her story is riveting. Let's get to it. I am not where you want to be. Trying to navigate life, but it's hard to see. Yeah. I am struggling to make a change. We're coming to me now is the perfect chance. With the fellow scripts, so you'll find your way to help you embrace any trials you face. With the fellow script, conquer every Whitelow recently left her career to pursue her lifelong childhood dream. Previously, Kathleen was a creative storyteller and strategic communications professional that connected employees to the company's brand, priorities, and core values through corporate and marketing communications as an independent communications consultant and has previously worked for TXU Energy as a corporate communications specialist. During her career, Kathleen won two AVA Digital Awards, one for video for the web informational and video for the web news and information. Kathleen is also an entrepreneur as founder of Kathleen Whitelow Jewelry, a meticulously handcrafted custom-made jewelry design firm. She formerly sold her jewelry at Saks Fifth Avenue stores nationwide and uber-fashionable Dallas-Fort Worth specialty boutiques. As a jewelry design firm specializing in gold, sterling, and Balinese silver, precious and semi-precious gemstones, Swarovski crystal jewelry, as well as other unique elements, Kathleen Whitelow Jewels creates works of art for the woman that personifies elegance, yet does not ignore the uniqueness of her personality. Kathleen's one-of-a-kind designs are truly inspired by the myriad of luscious colors found in nature. Kathleen is also a graduate of Loyola University in New Orleans, Louisiana, with a degree in marketing. Kathleen, welcome to Flipping the Script. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Can't wait to share with your listeners. It is unbelievable that we just spoke for the first time this week because you and I have dozens of mutual friends. We run in the same circles. We have lived near each other and yet we have yet to meet. I could have sworn that I I know I could have sworn that we met on some of our travels, but I guess not. We just have the same energy. So we feel like we know each other. Completely. (laughs) I do. I feel like I know you. And actually, when we talked earlier, we have been in the same room or at least the same space at the same time in Dubai a few years ago. That's right. That's right. 
and it was such a fun time it really is Mm -hmm. well what's funny Mm -hmm. is that i lived in texas near you in texas and we had mutual friends and i lived in texas for eight years and we still never crossed paths i know and that is that's so strange to me but you know what timing is everything and so we're here connected now that is true Yes. And one of the reasons why I know who you are is because, you know, you follow people kind of at a distance. And so I knew your name and I knew, you know, I'd see you tagged with some friends. And so I know part of your story. I don't know the half of it. So where should we begin? Oh, boy. I don't know. I hesitate to say at the beginning because then we'll be on here for days. <laughs> <laughs> highlights. Oh my, right, right, right. Exactly. Oh gosh. I don't know. Let's talk about, well, you know, we both want to empower, encourage and inspire others, you know, primarily, you know, women of color, middle-aged women of color. So we can start with the different changes in my career, my life that have propelled me, you know, to where I am now. Let's do that. Absolutely. Well, what was your first career then? First of all, where did you grow up? Okay, that can be a little complicated. I'm a proud army brat. And so while I'm originally from New Orleans, currently live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I grew up in West Germany, Bremerhaven and Frankfurt, West Germany in particular. I attended, you know, elementary school, most of junior high. In the middle of junior high, my family moved back to New Orleans. And so I finished high school and college there in New Orleans. Speak of culture My shock, how, how did that work out for you? Moving what, from Germany, from, yes, to New Orleans yeah. of all places in the United States. Right, it was a cultural shock because I started school in Germany, you know, a foreign country, and then moving to the U.S., it was a cultural shock because all I knew was Germany. And of course, I was made fun of because of the way I spoke. You know, any one of your listeners that may be from New Orleans or the New Orleans area, you know, we are unique in some of our vernacular. And so, you know, for instance, the word oil, O-I-L, you would pronounce it, you know, oil. Well, we say Earl. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Did you know that? No, I don't think I've heard that one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, orange for orange. Okay, I've uh, heard the that color one. or the fruit. Okay, yes. you've heard that one. You know, so it was a big, it was a big cultural shock. You know, between you know how we spoke, how I spoke, and also just you know the environment, and not always positive. You know, if I'm going to be honest, this was in the mid '70s. You know, so still a lot of you know racial turmoil and the like, and we didn't experience that in Germany hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But I can say growing up in a foreign country has shaped my worldview. And so, you know, it's not hard for me to meet a stranger. It's not hard for me, you know, to share my story, you know, because I know that there's someone that can be blessed by it. I'm sure you've heard of the phrase, your test is your testimony. Absolutely. Yes, yes. So that's where I am. My daddy, he regret returning to the States after a while, though. But it is what it is. You know, I finished college there. I attended Loyola University and graduated from there and then, you know, started my career. And so it's been a whirlwind ever since. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about career then. Okay. Where did you start? 
My, I actually started working at the Marriott Hotel on Canal Street, 555 Canal Street, while I was in college and I was in the convention services department. And so what we did, you know, we just meet with groups that wanted to host conventions in our fair city. And that was really fun. I really considered that playing hotel, not working at a hotel, but playing hotel because it was so much fun. Met so many fun people and, you know, fun organizations. I really enjoyed that time period. And then from there, I went to WWL-TV Channel 4, New Orleans local CBS affiliate and, you know, in marketing. And that was really fun. And that was when I turned 30, you know, we talk about change, you know, I had never lived apart from my family before, but while I was at channel four, I turned 30 at that time. And I just knew that, I don't know, somewhere deep down inside, you know, that little still voice, when you sit still long enough, you can hear it, you can feel it. Something told me that I had outgrown New Orleans and there was something bigger and more meaningful and greater waiting for me outside of the city limits. And I didn't know what that was. Mm-hmm. And so I just started applying for jobs. And then I uh, um, accepted a job with Helene Curtis, a consumer products company. And the opportunity was in Atlanta. And so, you know, I packed up my things and I could tell my mom didn't want me to go, <laughs> but I packed up my things and left because I knew that this was the beginning of my journey. You know, oftentimes, you know, people will do things because their parents, you know, they want to make their parents happy or, you know, their parents have groomed them to, you know, go to medical school, law school or something like that. And deep down inside, they knew themselves that that's not what they wanted to do, but to please their parents, you know, or whoever, you know they will do that thing that they, their parents or whoever wanted them to do. And I couldn't, you know, you've got to be true to yourself. I couldn't because I knew that if I did not heed whatever that little voice was telling me, you know, to do, to take this job, to get me out of New Orleans, I had to do that, you know? And so that's what I did. Yeah. I left. I'll never forget it because I, I moved to Atlanta. This was in May of 1992. And I started looking for an apartment with my new manager and it was the day that the Rodney King verdicts were rendered. And that I'll never forget that day because my new manager was a Caucasian gentleman and, you know, people seeing me, you know, this black woman with this white male, you know, we were yelled at them not knowing what the story was. He was just driving me around to find some place to live. Mm-hmm. You Kathleen, know, and uh, let me tell yes. you something else that is crazy. Yes. I moved to Atlanta around that time as well. Stop. Well, I moved to Atlanta <laughs> like a, maybe a year after you. Uh huh. So, how long did you live in Atlanta? I was only there for 18 months. I moved from Atlanta to the Dallas Fort Worth area, August of 93. In 1991 or 92, you may know about this. Let's see, the cable television industry was deregulated. And so that began the proliferation of a lot of new cable television regulations, new network, you know, new programmers and Showtime networks were, was looking for employees and primarily minority employees. And I applied for an account manager position in Showtime Networks, the cable television network in their Atlanta office. And unfortunately, or fortunately, because you never know, 
you know, what the universe is con- conspiring, you right, know, right. um, I really wanted to stay in Atlanta because I loved Atlanta at that, you know, point in time, so but the job I. opportunity was, yes, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was like the peak of Atlanta. <laughs> Baby. <laughs> okay. It was, oh my God. I still have memories about that place. I'm 25 plus years later. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. The offer was in Dallas and I knew that I wanted to be part of the dawn of, you know, a new industry, you know, as we've come to know it today. And so I accepted the job offer here in Dallas with uh, Showtime Networks. Okay. And so I've been here, you know, I've been here ever since. I did leave for a short period. Oh, when was that? November 04. But I hightailed it back to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, April of 2006. Okay. So yeah, I feel like I've been all over the place. Oh my God, when I sit and think about it. (laughs) But you know, you growing up in Germany explains why you don't have that real New Orleans accent. Oh, that's correct. Because, you know, my tongue, so to speak, was formed, you know, while I was a young person. Yeah. But it's funny, though, in any of your listeners from New Orleans or really from any, I guess, geographical place where there's a thick accent, you know, when you return home and you're around family or friends and you get a little comfortable, some of that will come out because I can catch myself sometimes saying certain things, you know, the way my say nieces and nephews, sometimes I can't even understand them. Their accent is so thick. (laughs) Right. Well, you you know, know, I moved from California to Atlanta and I could not (laughs) understand people from Georgia. (laughs) The accent. Really? Really? Yeah. And they thought that I was joking, but I was serious that I couldn't understand what they were saying because I was used to California accents. And so that Georgia accent, it took me a while to get used to that. (laughs) <laughs> right. And that is just so amazing, though, because we're all using the same words when you think about it. Right. How do how does that dialect, if that's the right word, you know, come to pass? You know, you could go to different parts of the country and, you know, hear the same words, but different delivery. I don't understand that. Yeah. Well, that's what mm. makes us all, you know, unique. Right. Unique. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So exactly. you worked in corporate then for quite a while. After you moved to Atlanta, or after you moved to Dallas, you worked yes. in corporate all that time. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I, let's see, I'm, I'm now got to, you know, think about my resume here. So yes, I was uh, Showtime Networks. And then, oh boy, I went to, I was offered a job with Z Music Television. Z is in Zebra. And it's a defunct network now, but the business model was analogous to MTV in the old days where they played just, you know, music videos. Now it's like reality shows on MTV. I don't recognize it, but the music television was Christian, contemporary Christian music videos. I did that for a while. And then I went on to the game show network and I'm sure everyone is familiar with the game show network. Who doesn't like games? Right. So yeah, I did that. So you're right. A long, long career in corporate America. Much longer than I thought it would be. Right. So I know that what makes your story remarkable and unique is that, you know, you have a lot to tell about resilience and overcoming obstacles and having to adapt to change. So what were some of those obstacles? 
Mm. All of a sudden, you know, those that are top of mind right now, you know, came rushing all at once. So it's like, where do I begin? You know, we all have challenges. Some of us have daily challenges, you know, but in terms of life changing, life altering challenges or obstacles, I think the biggest thing that impacts me and my family was Hurricane Katrina. I was not living in New Orleans at the time because again, you know, I left in 92, but my family was. And in the days leading to Hurricane Katrina, you know, I was watching the news reports. I begged my family to leave and they didn't want to. My mother was 75 at the time and they didn't want to. And the reason why is because there was another hurricane that threatened to hit New Orleans about maybe three weeks, a month prior, and they evacuated for that. Mm -hmm. And the hurricane did not hit. But because they evacuated, you know, they have, I think it's called like contraindicated traffic where traffic out of the city goes one way. And because they got caught up in that traffic, they ran out of gas. And it was a nightmare trying to, you know, take care of that and then get back home to New Orleans. So they didn't want to evacuate for Katrina. And so the day before my mother relented and she said, well, if you could get us in a high rise, you know, do that. They were doing what was called a vertical evacuation. Unfortunately, you know, I mentioned earlier that I used to work at the Marriott on Canal Street and there are more than, I believe, 20 floors in the hotel. But by that time, all the rooms had filled up. Right. So, you know, my family had to hunker down in the house. And, you know, anyone that is familiar with New Orleans uh, geographically, we are below sea level. The city is below sea level. And so it can rain hard and it floods. So I'll never forget this. And I don't know how detailed you want me to be with this, but feel free, you know, to interject. Because as I'm sharing this, it's bringing me back to that morning. Katrina hit on Monday, August 29, 2005. And I remember calling my mom to see how they were doing. And she said, let me call you back. I'm trying to get some things off the floor, trying to get my documents together. And I said, okay, I'm calling you back in about 10 minutes. (laughs) You know, I called back actually in 20 and I could not get through. And of course, you know, all of the networks were, you know, broadcasting from New Orleans and the surrounding area. Well, later that night, I received a call from my niece, who was 13 at the time, and she called me and um, said, Kathy, that's what everyone called me at home, Kathy, Mm -hmm. Kathy, we're in the attic. Can you help us? And then the phone went dead. Oh, Oh, my God. You know, people, you know, that's been how many years now? 15? This will be 16 years. And I'm telling you that. As I'm sharing this story, all of the emotions, the fear, the losses coming upon me. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, I understand. Yeah. Um, So I, I, I obviously I couldn't help them because I was hundreds, if not thousands of miles away. Right. I remember Roland Mart. He was a friend of mine and he was an anchor on CNN and I was able to get onto CNN. And I begged them to send whatever they needed to send to our home, 4754 Deanne Street, mm-hmm. you know, to get my family out of the attic. Because in that attic was my mother, who I mentioned was 75 at the time. And my, my nieces and nephews and all were in there and some other neighborhood friends. 
And so I won't go into all detail, but they spent a total of uh, two nights in that attic. And then the next day they were on the roof. Uh, my nephew was able to find something in the um, attic to punch a hole on the roof, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll give you high level because the story here that I want to really share with your listeners is resilience and overcoming what you feel at that moment are insurmountable obstacles, Right, that there is no way out. I finally found them, you know, my family was arrested, separated, jailed. My niece and nephew spent two and a half months solitary confinement. Vanita Gupta, who is a newly appointed assistant attorney general within the Biden administration, um, she represented my family. She was with the NAACP Defense Fund at the time and was able to get them out, but after two months. So arrested for Um, what reason? Okay, so they, as I shared, were on the attic, I'm sorry, on the roof for a day. Right. And when water started to recede, a little bit or just enough for them to wade in that water. They waded to a post office that was about a mile and a half, two miles from our house. Mm -hmm. Well, again, you know, Katrina happened on a Monday. They were still delivering the postal service was still delivering mail that Saturday. It was the end of the month. So there were a lot of, you know, welfare checks and other, you know, things that were being delivered. Well, when my family got to the post office, there were New Orleans police department officers and postal workers giving keys to people in the water to the postal trucks, saying, just take these trucks and get out, you know, as you can, because the levee had breached. Mm -hmm. And so my family took two, you know, trucks and pulled people from the water and they tried to drive towards Baton Rouge, but it was underwater part Mm -hmm. of the interstate. So it forced them to go into across the Crescent City connection, you know, the dual twin span. Well, that's another parish, you know, in New Orleans or in Louisiana, I think all of Louisiana, definitely New Orleans, we have parishes Mm -hmm. where other states have, you call them counties. Yes. Well, they drove to Gretna, which is another parish. And they had been receiving, yeah, the police and sheriff's department had been receiving reports that there were gang members that had stolen postal trucks. So here comes my family in these postal trucks. They stopped them with guns and rifles pointed at them, forced them out of the trucks, made them lie face down on the ground, on the the, the twin span, the Crescent City Connection. And again, my mother, 75 years old, Mm -hmm. handcuffed them and brought them to a jail in Gretna. That's when they were separated. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Breather, you know, because again, there's some, you know, I've, my niece over the last few years, just the last few years have started opening up about some of the things that they've witnessed, things that they weren't able to talk about, you know, um, while they were going through it and in the years following it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You carry that with Mm -hmm. you, especially when you come to, to facing death, basically. And it, and I'm telling you, that's what it is because Miss Irma, my mom said that they could hear Miss Irma, who lived alone with her three big German shepherds. And she wasn't, she was able to walk, but because of bad knees and, you know, she walked from side to side, she couldn't get along too great. Well, she was in the house by herself and my mom could hear her yelling for help. And when I called, when I was on CNN, 
I was just talking about the other elderly people in the neighborhood that didn't have anyone and they needed to go and check those houses. And, you know, they said that they would relay that information to the local authorities to do that. Well, Miss Irma's remains were found in her house the following spring of 06. Wow. I've got a lot of stories like wow. that. Wow. Wow. So I've now, a lot of stories like that. With you, of course, you weren't there, but it was your family. But that right. experience then, what? how did that change the trajectory of your life? Absolutely, absolutely. And I also forgot to mention, my father died a month before Hurricane Katrina. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, and I'm skipping over a lot because I just don't know. I don't mind sharing my story because as I shared with you earlier, my test is my testimony. I've shared to you in private. We all have a Katrina. I had a literal one. Yes. But there are listeners that are going through or have come out on the other side, but still can't find their way that also had a Katrina. Their so Katrina, even do, right. Yeah, their Katrina. And so my daddy died July 20th of 05, buried him July 28th. The reason why I wasn't in New Orleans was because I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina, because I married someone in retrospect I should not have. So I was in Charlotte and learned some things about him a week following the burial of my father that had I known, I never would have married him. Mm -hmm. House was in foreclosure. We were homeless because on August 10th of 05, because the sheriffs came and padlocked the door because the house was in foreclosure. That was so other than Katrina, you were having your own personal Katrina at the same time as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Two, two other Katrina's Prior to this. So over five weeks, my father died, learned some things about my now ex-husband, and then Katrina hit on the 29th. So over five weeks, I went through three major life-changing events. Yes. So how, did, how were you able to navigate your way through that? I don't know. <laughs> Not as easy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> But God, you know, right? retro, but God, that's all I can say. That's all I can say, because what got me through it, three is Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, but five is a number of grace. And even though, you know, I shared with you before that my faith plays a large part of who I am, even though I went through all of that, God's grace was with me. Mm-hmm. He kept me in perfect peace because I'm telling you, I could be in a straitjacket. Because again, I haven't even gone into detail of all that my family physically went through. Right. So, so, you know, that all really what changed the trajectory of my life was me deciding to leave my husband. And then of course, Hurricane Katrina, because my family lost everything, everything. They escaped literally with the clothes on their backs. That's it. How did that change your perspective on life? Oh, God. In so many ways, I know one of the things, you know, we all like nice things. We like to shop and all of that. But, you know, losing everything, memories, there are no childhood photos and all, none of that. My focus, I've always loved relationships. I've always been a people person, whatever, you know, that means it means different things to different people. But I started putting more of an emphasis on my relationships because I realized how closely I came to my entire family being wiped out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, focus on my relationships. Also, just as important is being true to who I am 
and true to standing in my truth. That is my phrase. Anyone that knows me now, they know that that's one of my favorite phrases, stand in your truth. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of things that I dreamed of doing, you know, before Hurricane Katrina hit, but because of fear, complacency, insecurities, not believing in myself, thinking that I couldn't do it, that my dreams were too lofty to attain, I didn't pursue them. After Katrina, I did. Plus, you always think that you have time. And one of the things when you face death then you realize how limiting life is, how short it is, and that you don't have the time that you think that you do. That's so true. So then I know that recently, fairly recently then, you Mm -hmm. achieved one of your lifelong dreams. Yes, I'm smiling. Can you tell? (laughs) (laughs) Which you could have easily just given up. So tell us what it is. Yes, I am. Can I say the company? If you'd like. Okay. I am a Delta Airlines flight attendant. Flight attendant. And Kathleen, how old were you when you became a flight attendant? I started as a flight attendant at the young tender age of 56. 56. (laughs) This is, ladies, it is never too late Always pursue your dreams. Absolutely. And I'm going to tell you, those dreams stay with you. I remember, again, I'm an army brat. And when we, by first flight, I may have been five, six years old. And, you know, we were referred to as stewardesses at this, at that time, you know, now we're flight attendants. Yeah. (laughs) And so, yeah, you know, we're flight attendants now. And so I remember receiving my first pair of wings when I was five or six years old from a stewardess. And she was so beautiful, so kind. It was as though I was the only one on her flight. And she made such an indelible mark on me that I said, one day I want to be a stewardess. But, you know, your life takes, you know, a turn here, turn there. And, you know, I have found myself in corporate America for more than 30 years. Well, after being, you know, laid off or, you know, in some jobs and then just quitting some jobs, you know, I said, you know what? I know that I'm tired of corporate America. Why am I continuing to apply to these Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies and all. I know I don't want to do this. You wanted to be a flight attendant when you were a little girl. Now's the perfect time to do that. So I applied with Delta Airlines, American Airlines, United, Southwest, Virgin. I applied a total of seven times, once before with Delta, but included in that seven times. On the eighth attempt, my second attempt with Delta is when I was accepted into their training program at 56. And Mm -hmm. I want to share this. I wasn't the oldest one in my class. The oldest person in my class, no ma'am, the oldest person in my class was 62. Wow. So you have to hand it to Delta too. Yes. You know, that they are looking beyond age and appreciating- you know, the experience and everything that an older woman can bring. 
That's right. And, you know, they even mentioned that, you know, because we're bringing so many sensibilities and, you know, our experience, business travelers make up a large portion of our revenue. Well, if I'm coming from a, you know, business background and I see someone, whether they're in first class, comfort plus or main cabin, that's working on a, you know, project. And this has actually happened to me. A gentleman was going to present his research paper to some symposium and he was having a hard time putting his PowerPoint together. So guess what I did? I helped him put his PowerPoint together. <laughs> you wow. know, and so of course, you, yeah. He's so, loyal yeah, to Delta, Delta forever. Ever, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, so you're right, kudos uh, to Delta. Uh, but, you know, now that was back in February of 2018. I graduated from the two-month training, which by the way, is was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I'm not even kidding you. You know, if I, there was a part in my career where I was a company spokesperson. So, you know, I'd have to go on camera to, you know, circumvent a potentially negative, you know, story about my company, you know, so I can do that with no problem. But that training and a lot of, I went into it a little, you know, a little scared that, oh my God, I'm 56. Am I going to be able to grasp this material? Yes. Yes. And Yes, I did. And so did my colleague who was 62, who, by the way, you know, three years, it'll be three years in February. So what, she's 65 now and flying. She's based in um, Los Angeles. You know, I just turned 59. I'll be 60 this year. And I'm telling you, most of the time I am, I'm not going to say most of the time with international flights, I'm the youngest person on the crew. I remember working a flight to, uh, uh, to Amsterdam and I was the youngest person on the crew. The oldest person was 76, 77, and they wow. ran circles around me. Wow. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, you know, to your point and what I want to stress, it is never too late. We get into our heads, into our minds and say, oh, you know what? I can't do that. I'm too old. That time has passed. Says who? Yes. You're saying that. Right. You're saying that. Right. And you don't You're know making that to an be excuse, true. really. That's it's right. That's right. But what is it? Because it could be. Exactly. But it could be rooted in insecurities. OK, so where is that insecurity coming from? You know, so sometimes we have to, you know, those tapes are constantly playing. So we have to go back to where does this tape come from? Where does this message come from? You know, in full transparency for me, it came from my father. Mm. You know, he didn't think that I could, you know, do the things that I've accomplished. And even, you know, one time, you know, I failed the test, you know, it was aircraft week at, uh, at the Delta's training and I failed an aircraft test. And with Delta, you know, you take that test the next day. And if you fail that test, you are dropped from training. Mm-hmm. And so I failed the test and I called my mom crying, this 56 year old, mom, I failed the test. And if I don't pass <laughs> it tomorrow, you know, <laughs> you know, you always need your mama. It doesn't always. matter how old you are. Always. always. Yeah. And I called her and she said, well, I think you're too old. And I said, mama, I'm not the oldest. The oldest person is 62. And then she said, well, I don't think you have it in you. I think you should go back to your other job. So I say all that to say, you know, it probably wasn't coming from a bad place. At least that's what I'm going to think, you know, but it's just that they want you to be safe. Do what when people try to talk you out of doing something, it's probably coming from a good place. Because they don't want to see you hurt. They don't want to see you waste time and all of that. 
But that voice that is propelling you to do that thing is not going away. And you don't want to get to the point stage in life where you are, you know, you can't do it for whatever reason. And then you start thinking, oh, I wish I would have. Right. You know? So you've got to heed that voice. Surround yourself with people that's going to speak into your life, that's create your support system. Fortunately, Delta realized the advantages of having someone your age then as a new hire. What, Mm -hmm. uh, were there any, are there any disadvantages? Just so we see the full picture. I, I felt like I had to study more because it had been so long that I was out of a study mindset, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. So I, I felt like I had to study more, apply myself more, you know, but now that I'm on the line, as we say, you know, I'm working as a flight attendant, it all makes sense. It's like breathing. And also we have to go to what we call recurrent training or CQ. You know, we have to go through training and be certified again every 18 months. Because first and foremost, our roles are safety roles. It's not service, it's uh, safety. And so we have to know how to, for instance, evacuate a, an aircraft with 50% of the exits blocked in 90 seconds. And we're tested on that. Yeah. We have over 25 types of aircraft in our fleet we flight attendants have to know where all of the emergency equipment is located, how to operate, arm, disarm, evacuate those aircraft. And it's different from each aircraft. We have to know how to do all of that. Whereas pilots, they're trained on one particular aircraft. Plane. That's all they have to know. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah. so fortunately, and, you're very physically fit as well, because it's very physically exertive then as well. Yes. Yes, it can be. But, you know, we have, you know, all different types. Another thing that people, you know, will say, well, do you have to be a size four or something like that? No, you do not. That's another falsehood that is out there. No, no, you just have to, you know, obviously customer service is big with Delta, you know, but also just be able to do the safety things that you have to do, know how to put out a fire. And they teach you all of that. Sure. So the big thing, you know, when you talk about this, you know, what are some of the disadvantages? The one thing for me was getting back into a study mode. Sure. Yeah. Understandable. That was a big thing. Mm-hmm. For some now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm single. I don't have any children. So I don't have anyone depending upon me for their livelihood. There are people that were in my class and this message might hold true for some of your listeners where they have family or they might have small children at home, but it can be done. If you've got a strong support system, that's when people will rally around you. Yeah. That will, that might be a challenge, you know, for some, if we're talking flight attendant, but that, that could be for anything really when you think about it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. So your story though, has been so remarkable as we have all been listening so far that you actually Mm -hmm. have been the subject of more than one book. Is that correct? Yes. And Valerie Burton 
Valerie, she spells her first name V as in Victor, A-L-O-R-I-E. Then, of course, Burton. She is a life coach. Uh, She has a life coach institute, and I believe it's in Atlanta, the CAP, C-A-P-P Institute. And she wrote about me in a chapter of her, one of her books called Listen to Your Life. And it talked about my, how I started my jewelry business, how it came to be. She wrote about it because she found it to be not only inspiring, inspiring, but also encouraging in just how our life does present or gives us signs, so to speak. That one. Yeah, um, that's crazy because in, you know, preparing for this podcast, I've got books everywhere. And so I, I um, you know, was trying to find the books and I, I could not, I can't find the book. I know that she wore my jewelry in her wedding and on the cover of one of her books. And so that's, you know, exciting. She was just inspired by, you know, my story and the importance of listening to your life. I'm telling you, our life, even when we were little, was sending signs already. Can I tell you a little bit about what signs I saw? Sure. You know, high level. Okay. Okay. So again, you know, army brat, I grew up in Germany. I have a rock. I'm looking at it right now. Again, I'm 59 and I got this rock. I found this rock when I first moved to Bamberg, West Germany, and then on to Bremerhaven. But I found this rock in Bamberg in 1968. So my math is bad. That's more than what, you know, 40 years for sure. It's 52 so I collect- because it's Well, my- thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was born. <laughs> oh, okay. I was born, yeah. <laughs> so I've collected rocks since I was a little girl. I've always been fascinated with rocks. And then in the early 80s, back at home in New Orleans, I started modeling for the Saks Fifth Avenue store. It opened in 82, I believe, in New Orleans. And the general manager that was in place when the store opened in 1982, fast forward to April of 2001. I'd gone home to visit my family and I stopped in the store to see some friends. And I, maybe about a year before that, started making jewelry just as a hobby. And when I visited that sack store, April of 01, 2001, I was wearing one of my designs. Mm-hmm. The store manager that was in place when the store opened in 1982 Carolyn was still in place April of 2001. And we were catching up good old stories, you know, remember fashion shows and designers that came to the city. And she noticed my necklace and she asked me if I was a, where did I buy it from? And I told her I made it. And she asked me if I was a jewelry designer. I said, no, it's just a hobby. Well, she liked it so much. She called over her jewelry manager who was going to the Saks Fifth Avenue corporate offices in New York on a buying trip. And she asked me if I mind if he take that necklace with me, with him rather, I'm sorry. And I said, sure, no problem. Well, the buyer contacted me a couple of weeks later and said that they wanted to launch my line at the Essence Fest that was later that summer, what, July of 2001 in their store. And I'm like, what, what? So I don't have... (laughs) This is not my business. Of course, I didn't say that because by that time, the year before I was on Oprah 
And then still didn't do anything because I was still doing it as a hobby because of fear, complacency. I had a really good job with Game Show Network, making good money. Wasn't happy, but I was making good money. Mm -hmm. I'd be crazy to leave that. But the fact that I didn't seek Saks Fifth Avenue out, that I did not seek to be a guest on Oprah. So the guy that I was dating at the time, I told him, yes, I'll, I'm honored. I definitely want to do a personal appearance at your store during Essence Fest. So the guy that I was dating at the time was a retired NFL player. He played for the Dallas Cowboys and he has two Super Bowl rings. I told him, you know, my God, they want to launch my line. I don't know what a collection's about. I don't know what to do. I don't have any money to buy my gemstones and, you know, the things that I need to create a collection. And he asked me, well, how much do you need? I figured out a budget. I told him, he wrote a check in that amount. Mm. Remember I said previously that when you, when you listen to that voice, when you look over the course of your life and what signs and the things, what, what has life been trying to show you, but you've been so busy. Right. It's and putting happen. people into your life at the time yes. that they need to be there in order it. to get you to where you need to go. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So he wrote that check. I bought my gemstones. I showed him how to, cause I had to make several, I had to make quite a few pieces. I showed him how to make the pieces that I had designed and he helped me. <laughs> and so my line was launched in my first Saks Fifth Avenue store in New Orleans. Wow. So, you know, again, listening to your life, yes. you know, at the stage of life that we're in, you know, I'm in my late fifties, you're in your early fifties. It's at this point we do, in my opinion, become, I don't want to say antsy, but we start questioning. We, we start looking within. We know that we don't want to do what we're currently doing, but we feel like it's just too late or we're too far into our career to make a, a pivot. But I'm the perfect example. It's never too late. Never too late. Never. That's right. Because not only did you become a flight attendant at age 56, what's going on with that jewelry line? Yes. And so many people have been asking me that over the years. I tell you, though, I know, oh my God, I think Michelle is going to be one of them. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> And I mean, you know, you and I talked like for what, three hours, day before yesterday or so, our first time ever talking. And I just feel like I know you already. And I'm thankful that you're one of my cheerleaders. I'm going to tell you, going through life-changing events like the death of my father, like my marriage, very short marriage ending, like Hurricane Katrina, it can change you at a molecular level. And what I mean by that is sometimes you start asking yourself, do you know who you are anymore? Can you really depend upon something because it can go away overnight? Mm -hmm. But you can't let that stop you. And I know that's easier said than done. And I'm an example of that. It has been 15, let's see, Katrina was in 05. So it's going to be 16 years. Yes. I haven't done anything with my jewelry business since then. As I'm talking to you, I'm sitting at my desk and I'm looking at these beautiful gemstones. I purposely took them out of their bags and I have like this a uh, pegboard. And so I've got my gemstones hanging on my board so Good. I can see them. Yes, I can see them. I have the first necklace I ever made, for, like when I was doing this as a hobby. I keep it in my purse as a reminder. 
I can feel my spirit saying, now it's time. Before I couldn't hear that creative voice. I hear it now. So to answer your question, I am working on some collections, some designs, revamping my website, all of that, because I, my goal is to launch, relaunch Kathleen Whitelow Jewels first quarter this year. Great. Oh my God, Perfect. now I'm committed. Yes, you are. So, matter of fact, yes. that is a oh, good boy. way for us to close because yes. we are going to be following up with you, Kathleen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Flipping the Script. If you like what you have heard, please make sure to subscribe to get notified of future episodes. Also, I would appreciate it if you would write a review and share with your friends. And I want to hear from you. Feel free to drop me a line and let me know what you thought about this week's episode or to suggest any future topics that you would like for me to explore. Or you can just stop by and say hello. You can reach me at flippingthescript.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Flippin' the Script. Want to continue the discussion? I also have a private group for ladies only on Facebook. I look forward to hearing from you. Bye for now. Every day.